This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello and welcome to the latest in our series of Talking Dirty, focusing on what's going on at East Ruston Old Vicarage, this fabulous 32-acre plant wonderland on the east coast of the United Kingdom. Uh, Alan Gray over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, looking absolutely splendiferous in a very patterned shirt. How the devil are you? Well, the devil in me is very, very well, thank you very much. Um, it's lovely to see Sylvia sitting in her mansion in the middle of Cambridgeshire. We have a lovely sunny morning here. It's the perfect autumnal day. It's still autumn, isn't it? Because winter doesn't really officially begin until December. Um, so we're, we're, we'll say we're in the middle of a lovely autumnal day, yeah. And we should clarify yeah. for anyone who's quickly checking their speakers and wondering if something's happened to their phone, computer, whatever they're listening or watching on. We have had a few connection issues this morning. Alan's laptop has decided not to play ball. So we've had to go for a secondary device <laughs> and the audio isn't isn't quite as good as normal. So we apologize for that. But as ever, recording opportunities, few and far between. So we're going to just yeah. seize the moment. This. <laughs> This makes me feel rather important because not I haven't done it. I mean, thanks to Ian. He was here this morning and he very kindly connected this up to my telephone, my mobile telephone. So I feel like one of those reporters on the news, you know, who are continually looking at their phones and they're talking to you through the through the telephone. It feels really rather sophisticated for me. Well, you are very sophisticated <laughs> and important, Alan. Uh, sophistication, also the word for your garden, which I haven't been lucky enough to take a November stroll through, but I know that it will be absolutely full of colour, uh, not least all of the glorious autumn colour on the foliage at the moment. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, there's that wonderful term, um, well, terminology that came from America, leaf peeping, which I think is rather nice because it almost makes it sound like a clandestine um <laughs> pastime is if you slightly naughty leaf peeping. Um but no, there's an awful lot of leaf peeping to be done, especially on the East Park where we, we went for a walk on Sunday and I mean I don't know how many photographs I took because the thing about leaf peeping and leaf colour is that sometimes it's terribly transient. It's very, very quick. I mean cherries, for example, I think that all members of the cherry family they're, they colour up beautifully in the autumn, and that's one of the selling points of buying a cherry, is that you try and pick one with a good autumn colour because that will then afford you two seasons of interest, at least. And um, the one thing I think you have to realise is that once a cherry starts to turn, it turns fairly quickly. I mean, this is all weather-related. For instance, wind is a great enemy of, of autumn leaves, as we know. Um, and suddenly, if you get a cold night, frost can make the leaves just drop very suddenly. Um, so... Enjoy it while you can. Um, and so I was taking masses and masses of photographs of lots of cherries, and there's a common old eating cherry, dare I say that. It had one of the best colours of, of foliage on it than any that I've, I've seen. And so, I mean, that was... Um, I tell you what I took enormous joy out of as well. There was this apple tree, and we don't get round to harvesting all our apples. There's an apple tree... And it had a few remaining bright, bright scarlet red flower, uh, fruits on it. But the, the ground beneath, the, the grass beneath the tree was studded with all these lovely scarlet apples. 
Um, and I know a lot of people would look at that and say, oh, what a waste. Well, in a way, I suppose it is, but it's not in that another way because those fallen apples will feed goodness knows how many different um, little creatures out there, the wild creatures out there. I mean, not just finches, um, not just uh, mice, voles, or whatever are going to come along and eat them. But, I mean, did you know that foxes eat apples? They eat uh, windfalls? Yeah. I mean, all those little things. Um, but also all the late late insects, they'll come and benefit from a, a sweet and slushy old apple laying on the ground. Marvellous. <laughs> so I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that enormously. And, of course, you have a huge um, variety of, of specially picked types of apple. I mean, you've got lots of local varieties. It's not, they're not like as an inherited orchard of random ones. You've You've planted all of that. Well, yes, we have. And we did try to, I wanted all Norfolk apples, but that was, that was too small a, um, a, a library to pick from, if you like. Um, and so we had to go for East Anglian varieties. And I think a couple of other, um, there may be a couple of others that have crept in there because something like, you know, Dr. Harvey or into something like that, something that we wanted specifically. Um, and there's a couple of pears in there, which I knew nothing about until I picked one about two weeks ago. And it's delicious. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you cut cut the fruit. We always used to laugh about this on the radio. You cut the fruit and you sort of pull it and jiggle it towards you and backwards and all the rest of it. And you sort of think if it's if it if it loosens itself and drops into your hand, it's ready. And I brought it into the house. And I think that one of the tricks with pears anyway is to let them come up to room temperature, because then you you know that once the flesh reaches room temperature, you get the full flavour of the pear. It's lovely. I have a new affection for pears because they are, I think, the favourite food stuff of my little person. He absolutely <laughs> loves a pear. Uh, they're obviously quite a slippery character, so it's quite fun watching him try to tame the loose pear like a bar of soap running all over his body. Uh, the well, other day, he, he got hold of it and jammed it against the table so that he could just munch downwards. <laughs> children and nothing is not innovative are they i mean it's, it's, it's lovely it's lovely so, yeah next garden well, i think i'll plant I, a pear in fiola's honor so that uh, he can yeah. have pears forevermore as well as that i mean there's there's umpteen um plants in flower at the moment so, you know a lot of things that we think shouldn't really be still flowering at this time of the year not least hydrangeas because the other day going through the woodland i i thought well i'll pick some of these hydrangeas that have gone over you know, the old dying blooms with their lovely sort of venison print colours, the sort of earthy sort of rusty tones on them and a little bit of red still there. Um, and I looked around and I suddenly thought, well, there's fresh flowers on this one, on this one. And so I picked a bunch of fresh hydrangeas oh. and I put them in a pot together with a, um, a chrysanthemum, which, of course, is looking wonderful in the garden at the moment. Um, and it, it's um, a variety called um, the Chelsea Physic Garden. And it really doesn't go colour-wise, but hell, they're all fresh. So we have pink and white hydrangeas, and we have the rusty um, chrysanthemum there. And I mean, it's just lovely. I love oh, the smell oh. of chrysanthemums, you know. They're, they're, they have this peculiar smell, a bit like African marigolds or French marigolds. Um, people, some people like it, some people dislike it. I love it. To me, it's a seasonal thing, I think. I had a nice surprise um, at the allotment the other day. I, I forgot that I'd taken a, a couple of, or probably three or four chrysanthemum plants, little ones that I had, and I didn't really have a spot for them. I didn't want them to get overwhelmed in the garden. And I thought, well, this is what the allotment is for. I can put them yeah. out in a row and allow them to bulk up. And one of those was a very uh, lovely gift that has come from Brian Ellis, 
who I haven't seen for, I don't know, a year or something. So he'd given it to uh, Joe Sharman at Monk Silver, who'd looked after it for a little bit until he saw me. And then he'd given it to me. And uh, I planted it at the allotment and and basically forgot. It was sort of betwixt the zinnias and the cosmos. And obviously they're all now going to, to nothing. And so up arising the chrysanthemums. And I think it's Killerton tangerine. You can yeah. see why Brian sent it my way. I mentioned it as a flomo on one of these podcasts long ago, and he kindly listened, sent it to me, and it's now ablaze with all these lovely orangey flowers. So I went up there. I thought, oh, what's that? What's that lovely beacon of orange where everything else is dying? And it was uh, is a chrysanthemum, which is kind of what chrysanthemums are great at this time of year, just suddenly being ablaze where you might have forgotten you were going to get a flowery treat. Well, I think the thing about chrysanthemums is that they are, most of them are very, very late. There are two varieties, I think, that start uh, flowering very early. One of them is Dixter Orange, which obviously uh, uh, originated from Great Dixter. Great thing about that is it was from a, um, it was one that uh, Christopher Lloyd uh, selected from a seed-grown ordinary range of chrysanthemums. And the reason he selected it is because it precociously started flowering in July. Um, and then it goes on. If you deadhead it, it just goes on and on and on. And it is what it says. It's a double flower, but it's orange. And it's absolutely lovely. The other was one, I think, that was raised by Joe Sharman, who we just mentioned. Um, and Joe called it Esther. I think he's named after his mother, if I remember correctly. Um, and Esther is the most sophisticated shade. She's kind of parchment, um, cold, very cold, milky tea with a slight shading of duskiness to her. Um, and it's, again, it's a double flower and it's a very early starting one. So they're two of my favourite chrysanthemums. But, you know, when you get to this time of year, you just have to say, I love them all. And I mean, I looked out of my bedroom window this morning down onto the front courtyard, which is just out there. And um, there's this wonderful single red flower um, chrysanthemum. And it's just this pool of lovely red colour. And I think it's called Royal Command. Um, and that is a lovely, lovely thing. And then I looked up above it, and there is fuchsia. Now, fuchsias, you see, they're making a tremendous show. We haven't had, well, I think we've had a touch of ground frost here, but nothing serious. Um, and fuchsias come into their own in this kind of environment, because what do they love? They love the cool. They don't like it too hot. Um, and they also suffer an awful lot from um, the capsid bug, which gets into the, into the little new shoots, and it nibbles away, and it makes... The leaves distorted and it eats the flower buds. But the capsid bug season of, of activity ends in September. And suddenly the fuchsias can go, yay, I'm going to grow and I'm going to flower and I'm going to do well. And there's above this Royal Command chrysanthemum, there's a fuchsia called a rauco. And a rauco is a kind of, it's dwarfish, but this one is about four feet tall, three to four feet tall. Um, and it has lots and lots of small flowers, a bit like a Magellanica, but they're, they're sort of, pinky cream on the outside with little purple inners. Um, and they're just charming, absolutely charming. And, you know, it just, this goes on and on and on until, until it's overcome by too much darkness, I think. I think day length has an awful lot to do with the flowering period of plants, um, some of which, including chrysanthemums, of course, are influenced because they, they don't flower until the nights are longer than the days. They're influenced by the day length. Um, but... Um, and then you suddenly get the, the whole thing crumbles down and you get probably just about towards Christmas. And I mean, as you know, I used to do a Christmas Day flower count in the garden here at East Ruston. Well, it's 
I mean, I still do it, but it's pretty futile, really, because these days, because of our timetable and our schedule here, we have to be um, on top of getting borders cleared and planted and with bulbs and everything and ready for the, the following season, um, which means that an awful plant, a lot of plants that would normally be left are, are cut back or ripped out or, and so the flowers are gone. Um, but that's only because we have to get ready, for, as I said, for the following season. And our next big thing is our snowdrop day, which is on 4th of February this year. And so well, that'll be here dark. before we know it. Yeah, that's that's exactly why you see, because <laughs> these things come around so quickly. Um, and and I think we're going to open on that week. Um, I think we're going to open on the fourth of February for our snowdrop day, and then that the following week we'll open on the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, um, and Saturday. I think um, so that people can come and they can look at the snowdrops at their leisure, or they can just come and see the garden and and visit the garden. And, you know, this is a, a bit of a thing for really, really, I suppose, for our season ticket holders, although everybody's welcomed. Um, but for our season ticket holders, because that's the, the beginning of the season and they can come and they can sort of see what we've been doing and all the rest of it. And of course, there has been an awful lot of things that have been happening, as well as the trees that, that have come down. The eucalypts or the widow makers, I call them widow makers because that's what some of them are known as in Australia, because in extreme uh, conditions of heat, they will suddenly discard a branch. And if you're standing underneath it, you know, that there's the men in the, who work in the forest are standing underneath it. They get clobbered and their wives become widows. So it's called a widow maker. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got to watch out for those. Um, but so lots of our eucalyptus have got really rather too top heavy. And so we haven't taken them out completely, but we've cut them back. So we're going to pollard them back to that stump about every two years, I think, which we should have done, didn't get round to. And then, of course, we get faced with a damn great bill for... <laughs> getting the things down but the plus side is that you've got all that lovely um uh, all the lovely eucalyptus foliage if you can use it somewhere there's far too much for us to use so it tends to get chopped up um and put back on paths and things like that in woodland areas the smell um the aroma from the eucalyptus of course is absolutely wonderful and then the logs get put in piles ready for ground to split and store for three years until they dry out and I've discovered something else, which I, I, well, I knew about it really, but I mean, that's something I've been using. Um, we have um, wood fires in the house, um, anything to alleviate the very high cost of oil today, which we need for central heating. So we tend to have our rooms as little pools of, of heat. And, um, <clears throat> and the one in the library does a marvellous job because it goes, it's a wood burning stove and it goes up through the middle of the house. And so it heats the walls as it goes up, the chimney goes through. Um, so that's good. Um, but eucalyptus shed their bark in great slingets. And it comes down, and it's very decorative in, in lots of ways, and I've often sort of wondered what to do with it. And I know that it makes very good kindling, but it's tough stuff, because you, you really need a big shear to cut it up into smaller pieces to fit the half. And I was fiddling around on some... Well, tell you the truth, this is what happened. I went up to the potting shed to do some work in the potting shed, and there was Graham, and he put everything on from that I put on his bench on my bench. So I couldn't get on. <laughs> and so I sort of huffed and snorted for a little bit, and nothing, you know, anyway. So I thought, well, what can I do? So I went and gathered up some of this um, eucalyptus stringy bark, and it was wet because we've had so much rain. So what I did was I, I bent it. It bends, it's very malleable. And I bent it up into things, and I just tied it. So I made little sheaves of kindling wood if you like that like that 
tied it with a piece of garden twine, and I, I brought them down to the laundry room. They're in the laundry room. They dried out. They dry out very, very quickly. Um, and you put the, you use, use one of those in the bottom to light your fire with. Well, it is absolutely fantastic. And if you think about it, when eucalypts are growing in their native Australia and various other places, um, and you have a forest fire, the forest fire comes through and it goes and up into the trees and moves on. And that's why the old trunks survive, the roots survive. It's because this bark is so packed full of volatile oil, it flares up. And, you know, if you have a little bit of that in the bottom of your fireplace, why bother paying for fire lighters? Grow a eucalyptus tree. So incredibly <laughs> clever, uh, nature, and you. It's like a cottage industry waiting for somebody who has the time, and I suppose the eucalyptus <laughs> grove, uh, to be able to, to make little bundles of kindling. I bet they look quite attractive. It's almost like a nice gift. Well, it is. I mean, put a basket somewhere in the back hall or something like that or wherever you keep your, your wood, you know, and it looks rather lovely. You're quite right. Yeah. The only thing I think you have to be watch out for at this time of the year in particular, and with logs as well, I'm going to put in little creeper, creepy crawlies or insects and various other things. Um, I noticed that the other day we had two queen wasps on the window and they'd obviously come out of the wood pile where they'd gone to, to um, hibernate for the winter. And, you know, the one thing I think the gardeners probably don't realise quite as much as they should do, is the beneficial um, effects that, that um, wasps have on the garden. They, they kill an awful lot of pests. I know they're pesky nuisance to us in um, August, September and October when they get lazy and they want to fly around and they land on your lunch if you're eating outside. Uh, and if you've got a honey or a jam sandwich, well, we'll be charge you, you know, they'll, they'll, they won't leave you alone. Um, but other than that, it's, it's, uh, it's well worth, um, you know, seeking them out if you can and giving them a a hiding place. In my bedroom the other day, there were two queen wasps. There was um, a selection of ladybirds, um, three butterflies, um, and they'd all come in. I don't know where they come in from, but, you know, you've got to realise that I live in a house that was built in 1913. <laughs> and it <there> <laughs> had cracks and crevices that probably, um, uh, well, shall we say they're taken advantage of by anything that wants to get in. Um <laughs> In the winter with us. Busy late in your week. bedroom. <laughs> yeah, late week. Well, I think they go to the top. And the top of the house is where the heat might migrates to as well, doesn't it? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I interesting know. having uh, the eucalyptus and I think Monterey Pines uh, felled as well. Yeah. So mm. many, I assume, exciting planting opportunities that you've now got all this light coming through and, and where the trees have been felled, not necessarily taking the moisture out of the soil. So I assume you're buzzing away with ideas for what you're going to do in those areas. Yes. I mean, because, you know, the where the Monterey's are coming down on the, on the western side of the garden, um, in the woodland garden, they, are, they were part of the beginnings of, of a shelter belt. And they served their time there very, very well. And they still do to that to a certain extent. But of course, as they've got older, they're, they're, they get top heavy. Um, and so it makes sense to take them down before they fall down and do an awful lot of damage. Um, the other thing I think is with Monterey pines is that the ground beneath them becomes, all, I'm, I'm going to say infertile, but that's totally the wrong word because it, of all the needles that fall. Now, the needles, they do have one good effect, and that is they make your soil slightly more acid. So if you want blue hydrangeas, heat um, pine needles underneath them and they will gradually turn a blue um, or 
probably more like purple than blue, depending on how what your pH value is of your soil. Um, but they also have an effect that they they prohibit or stop, inhibit, I mean, not prohibit, they inhibit the growth of other plants underneath the, the trees. Um, to, so they're, they're not going to, um, you know, cont contest for moisture and nutrients and things like that. So you've got to rake all those needles off. So it's a good good idea, you know, when you get get this lovely area of soil, which incidentally is not lovely at all because it's full of tree roots and all the rest of it. But the best thing I think that you can do, one of the easiest things you can do, is you take your trees out um, and grind out the stumps if you can so that you help to stop um, honey fungus and various other nasty things like that happening. Um, and then just thick layer of mulch over it. Doesn't matter what the mulch is, but just a thick layer of mulch over it. And if you can leave it for a couple of years, which of course we never can because, you know, you need to plant. <laughs> Um, and, and th which is why we use farmyard, well-rotted farmyard manure for this, or something called Plant Grow, which is a soil um, improver, um, which you can buy from the, the guys in South Norfolk who make it for stuff with our anabolic digester, <laughs> which is um, awfully good, and it, it improves the quality of the soil so that you can get on planting sooner. Um, but if you can leave the mulch on for two years, it will do its work. It will do the hard work for you because the or the soil will loosen up and the, the worms will drag the mulch down into the soil and make it reasonably friable. You're always going to get big old bits of root that you need to dig out, but that's, that's life. You know, it's, yeah. it's a series of compromises, as my husband tells me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so in these, then, uh, in these darker months, when perhaps you aren't in the potting shed quite as long as you might be at other times of year, though... You probably are, um, knowing you. Uh, but do you? Uh, is your mind whirring away? Do you lay in bed at night thinking about your plans, what plants you might be able to get away with in these areas? Is it already planned? No, I do that during the day. At night, I'm too tired. I just get to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, well, there's nothing like being in the garden to get inspiration because, you know, you'll see something, um, a couple of plants that are growing together or you'll see a plant and then you'll come upon something else and you think, well, the, that Acer would look, look wonderful next next door, to, next to that, whatever it is you're seeing. Um, and so you're constantly getting ideas like that. Um, <laughs> and it's that's an impossible thing to answer, really. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I'm thinking about plants the whole time. I have to have uh, a notebook with me at all times. And if I failing that, I use these, these little things, which are in index cards. I've got a pile of those in the potting shed and just scribble ideas down. Um, then I have to put them into a book because if I don't do that, I lose them. And and that is infuriating. But, you know, there are one or two things that are happening in the garden. Well, let's, let's start with the new glass house, shall we? Ooh. The new glass house. We had our original um, Dutch light glass house, which is the first big glass house we ever had in the garden here at East Ruston. It came from Perity's, a firm in Lincolnshire. And it was a typical, it was, this, it was the kind of glass house that, predated polytunnels and it's the same sort of shape with that kind of arc if you if you see what I mean um and w w the reason we we went for that was purely and simply cost because to get a, a large glass house it was the uh, the cheapest uh, thing that we could get and, and I've looked upon it for years as being um a bit of a workhorse thing rather than a thing of beauty and then when we were we were taking it down somebody came and said oh what a shame it's such a lovely thing. It 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 looks vintage. It looks right, and <laughs> which I suppose it did to some eyes. But to me, you see, 
All I could see is the fact that it was sort of getting slightly distressed and it was getting slightly buckled and the glass didn't fit and we had a gale and the glass would slide down and you got to go up in the morning and push it up and all of those sort of things. So anyway, we a new glass house has gone in and so we're very, very pleased with that. It now has smart double doors that lead straight out onto the plant stand and a door on each end. Um, and it's, um, it's home to a load of plants that I didn't know we had in a way, but maybe we'll... How much do you keep that you put your bed out in the summer? That is a question because I've always said this, that however much space you have under glass, you fill. And you do several times over because my next job is um, to go through and to edit. Um, I have to edit how much we're going to keep of each thing. Because one of the things I've noticed is that I do masses of cuttings, as you know, propagation wise. And the cutting of a salvia such as kisses and wishes or... Um, Ember's Wish, one of those two. They are two of my most favourite salvies at the moment because they last such a long time. But if you take a little cutting, um, say in October or something, pot it on and pot it on, you'll get a decent sized plant. But if you could have the space and the inclination to overwinter a plant in something like a four litre pot, you have a bigger plant. And that bigger plant is almost an immediate effect when you put it out next the following June or late May or June. Um, and gives you a much longer period and you need less of them because they're bigger. Um, so we always try and have a few of those. And, uh, oh, I don't know. It's a... <laughs> you basically need about 10 glass houses to fill. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to have 10 glass houses and five gardeners to work in them because that would be my absolute ideal, I think. Um, and even then, we'd probably run out of space. Yeah. Um, I was going around the garden the other day and I suddenly... I thought suddenly camellias seem to be everywhere flowering away. They're the Sasanqua varieties. And you think that this time of the year, shrubs probably not flowering really. Um, it's autumn and we don't get that kind of thing. But certain camellias you do. And there are some Sasanqua cut camellias that have been crossed with others. And they produce double flowers. And I've got a lovely double pink one. Don't ask me the name of it. I couldn't possibly remember. But it's, it's, it's lovely. And... Um, I noticed yesterday, walking past our Drimis winterize, it's a very tall shrub. It's almost like a small tree, except it's clothed to the ground with lovely leathery, dark greyish green foliage, long leaves with uh, red leaf stalks. Um, it produces in May, April, May, huge panicles of lovely um, greenish white flowers, followed by black berries. My drimis is actually flowering now. It flowered in April and May, and it's doing it again. Um, I don't know why. It's got confused for some strange reason. I think it's probably something to do with the heat we had in, in last year. Um, although everybody's blaming the, the heat we had last year on something or other. But, I mean, it's something that's upset the equilibrium of it. Anyway, it's going to have masses and masses of flowers. Mm, if we don't get a really, really sharp cross, which I'm hoping we won't. Um, so that's sort of uh, something else that's flowering, which I, it took me by surprise. Um, and roses, of course, are still going strong as well. You know, the roses that haven't yet been cut back, lots of them have been cut back and that, you know, the, you lose the blooms on those. But some that, you know, a few ramblers or a few climbers um, and the odd bush in the garden, if it, if it had flower buds on, I'll walk past that and pretend I haven't seen it because I just think, you know, there's a possibility you could bring them in the house and just, and that lovely waft of rose scent in the summer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, and oh, I tell you what I think is wonderful. I think you grew something like this, didn't you, um, nasturtiums this year? Yes. 
Oh, well, I was overjoyed at the allotment to be able to have sort of nasturtiums. It it wasn't quite the fountain of nasturtiums I would have dreamed of, but it, as the year went on, they did sort of spread. And then I planted it at the foot of uh, the sweet pea um, uh, wigwam so that they could go up a little bit. But I kind of, they were next to the sweet corn. I wanted them to sprawl out. So that's what they did. They went meandering around the feet of the sweet corn. And they're, they're still there. It, it was um, Jewel of Africa because I wanted a nice variegated splash and uh, and I had a few different plants and one of them was a lovely peachy flower as well so I was very happy with that um so th that was wonderful but I know your array of tropiolums is um something to covet in the extreme every time I walk around your garden no matter the time of year there seems to be some tropiolum for me to swoon over <laughs> Well, uh, and the family Tropelium is um, fascinating. It's absolutely lovely. I've even got a blue one, but I'll tell you about that in a minute. Um, but, I mean, good old-fashioned ordinary nasturtiums. Let's take them, them as a... I mean, they're wonderful. They've been used through for my gardeners throughout the centuries, from Gertrude Jekyll to Christopher Lloyd to anybody with any sense. Because, it, well, you know, a few seeds dropped at the base of... Some delphiniums that you cut the seed heads off and leave the leave the plant standing, um, they'll scramble up and they'll help disguise the dying stems, um, and they are just lovely. But I think one of the things that people probably don't realise is just how easy they are to propagate. We always think of nasturtiums as being um, propagated from seed, but what happens if you get a double flowered nasturtium? Now, double flowered nasturtiums. There were three that I know of. Um, one's called Hermione Grasshoff. And there are uh, Darjeeling Gold is another one. Um, there's several anyway. Um, they don't set seed, but they keep on flowering because they, you know, because they don't set seed. The plant thinks it's trying to set seed and it can't. Um, they have to be propagated with cuttings from cuttings. They're the easiest things to root in a little glass of water or something. You know, they really are easy. And brings me to just say this to you: your lovely apricot-coloured one. That if you wanted to preserve that colour, yes, and you wanted to have just that colour, and you know, be a little bit more sophisticated than this jolly circus for all these lovely colours, um, you could actually propagate it from cuttings and just limit your palette to that. Yeah, that's a um, very good idea because they really are. Anyone who hasn't done them and thinks, "Oh, I don't know if they are easy," I I don't consider myself to be any great propagator, and uh, and yet when my um my Ken Aslett that wasn't a Ken Aslett. Uh, <laughs> it was a tuberosum missold as so many of them are but uh, I had it indoors on the windowsill and it was getting too tall for the stake and the space so I just cut the top out and turned it into a couple of cuttings and they both rooted and then you kind of yeah. turn those into a couple of cuttings as you keep running out of room and they've all died now because they got killed off last winter they were outside but uh, but it is so easy I don't think I used any rooting hormone I just stuck them in pots because I didn't need them. You know, if you really desperately yeah, want yeah. something to yeah. grow and you put all this extra effort in, I didn't need them as such. I didn't really have room for them. So I was like, well, I, I can't bear to just compost it. I need to try and see if they'll grow. And yeah, sure enough, they did. Exactly. And the other thing I think you you should realise perhaps about nasturtiums is that some of these modern colours, especially the, the pinks and, and, and the lemons, as the evenings get colder, the colour of the flower changes. And I can remember seeing one at Tim Fuller's um, nursery in South Norfolk, and it, it was kind of green and pink. And I said, oh, where did you get that from? And he said, he told me where it came from. It was a, it was a, a seed-grown variety, um, and it was just a, a, a something like a pink or a lemon or something like that. But he said it changes colours as it gets colder. 
I said, well, can I have a cutting? He said, yes, of course, help yourself. So I helped myself to a cutting and I grew it. And it was just an ordinary one the following year when, you know, it flowered in May, June, July and August and all the rest of it. But it was, at the, you know, this time of the year when the colours colors change and it's lack of light as well that hurries that, mm. that along. So it's worth knowing that. But as well that as, there's that um, very trendy little one um, called, was it Ladybird Rose? Very yes. charming colour. I've never, yes. never had... Um, it's never been very boisterous for me, um, but uh, I, I think I might try it again because it's it's really beautiful. It is a lovely colour. But, I mean, I, when, when you were talking about your nasturtiums, um, that uh, you've got this lovely apricotty colour, I do remember there being some with brownish flowers. Some that I always used to think, gosh, that's sophisticated. <laughs> you know, a, a, a lot of that would look wonderful. So that, that's how to do it. Anyway, pentaphyllum, tropiolum pentaphyllum is flowering at the, at the, at the moment. That's a lovely little thing. They look like pixies hats almost. They're pink on the outside, green with little speckles in the speckles, middle. And they're yeah. A, yes, they're a flower to be appreciated up close, I think. Um, but I've got um, some just near the laundry room that are flowering there uh, at the moment. Most people would pass them by and not even see them. But to the acquisitive gardener, gosh, what's that? I must have that, you know. Um, so that's nice. I've got smithy eye which came to me as a seedling in a pot that I bought from a nursery. And I thought, what's that? Grew it on and it flowered. And I, Smithy Eye, it's in two tones, red and orange. It's, it's thought as colours. It's absolutely glowing. It's climbing, scrambling up a hedge at the moment. And Smithy Eye is very good for doing that in a dry area where, I mean, we all would love to have Tropiolum speciosum, that, the flame flower that you see flowering through yew hedges and all the rest of it. But it loves to grow somewhere much cooler than we are here in the east and it needs more rainfall ideally um it can be done but it's it's hard work but smithy eye is not hard work and smithy eye would it would <laughs> fulfill that role tuberose from ken as you, you've mentioned already well that's of course flowering away and it i don't know whether it was brought brought over here to eat or not but you can eat the tubers i don't know what they taste like i don't really fancy trying them but i mean you not know. that desperate yet <laughs> no 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 but the one thing that it does is it hoists its tubers up onto the top of the ground. <laughs> and you can see them and they're kind of green with purple flashes on them. And they're kind of knobbly, like a bit of a knobbly potato. Um, interesting things, but lovely nonetheless. Um, so, yeah. And, oh, I mentioned my blue one I have. Yes. Um, Lionel, who's a very, very good um, plant person, is a season ticket holder in the garden and the source of many a good plant. He arrived one day and he said to me, there you are, see what you can do with those. And there was this little bag with three three tubers about the size of a, twice the size of an acorn in them, I suppose. And it just said, blue trop. And there is a blue flower, tropiolum. It grows very much like, and looks very much like tropiolum tricolor. So we'll see what happens with that. But it's, it's, it's a plant that I know um, it requires patience. Mm. I, I know um, there's a blue one, but I've never actually seen it. So I hope yours does well. But I've got a funny feeling it's more mauve than blue, you know. It's it's a little bit of poetic license there with people. They want it, they want it to be blue, but it, in truth, is it? I don't know. We'll see yeah. if it flowers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, it would be impossible to ever say a favourite plant, a favourite family of plants, but tropiolums are definitely up there. I I just, I haven't met one that I didn't want, even was it ciliatus or whatever that's absolutely rampant. Ciliatum, yeah, yeah. Well, that's one I've, I've, I've got to say to people, if you want it, be sure that you want it because <laughs> it does, I mean, it romps around here underneath the beach hedge and it goes 
under the lawn and then comes up on the other side and goes over a wall and then goes under the wall and so on and so forth. What once you does, see it, it, you once you see it, so you, I, I remember seeing it on a yew hedge and oh, look, that's yeah. lovely. Oh, and it's there. Oh, and it's over there. Oh, yes, and it's over there as well. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't that tell you something? <laughs> what it does, it makes these these little tuberous roots and then a, a thin root and then another tuber and then a thin root and another tuber. So there's these chains of tubers going around. <laughs> it's it's the kind of plant, I mean, I do sell it, um, but I always say to people, be sure that you want it because, you know, you've seen it in the garden here. You you can see how rampant it can be. Even I haven't got it. I love it. But even <laughs> for once, I've thought maybe my garden's not the right place. The entirety of my village would probably have it. We're all cheap well, exactly, by jowl here. Yeah, but you see, the thing is, we have it growing in in this beach over over this beach hedge. <laughs> Next to the beach hedge, we have a low dwarf yew hedge. It completely engulfs that, and it has to be pulled off about four four times a year. And you know, you grow up and you pull the, all the top growth away, um, and that's what you have to do with it because there's no other way of dealing with it. And back it comes. And yes, it does. <laughs> which but I mean, is, also which beautiful. I suppose is yeah, because it's nice because it likes you. Or is it thinking, I'm going to teach this silly fool a lesson? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, they are they are wonderful. And it's it's lovely. Um, the allotment is, is basically gone to rack and ruin. I haven't had a chance to do anything other than weed. And, of course, it's been so wet and, and pretty mild. Uh, every time I weed, I go back a couple of days later. They all seem to have returned. So you think, what was that all about? What did I spend all that time doing? Um, I know that, but... that happens at this time of the year. But, but I mean... You know, and this time of the year, one thing I will say is that, you know, <clears throat> the garden is hit by these heavy, heavy periods of heavy rain and the wind that we've had. So there are areas of the garden that look, you know, the, the, the plants have gone down and they're all, and very, I mean, things, softly things like soft growth of dahlias and things like that. <laughs> they look um, rather disgusting, especially if you can to sort of remove that if you want your garden to look tidy. Um, but there are other areas of, in the garden where the wind and the rain doesn't affect so badly. And it's those that you learn to look for all these lovely little jewels and things. But then having said that, there are certain plants. And there's there's one salvia that I think, well, possibly more, but uh, there's one that definitely holds its head above water um, for giving you lake colour. It's a big plant. It's called salvia involucrata bertholii. Um, there are several in volume craters. There's Bartholii, there's Mulberry Jam, there's one called Joan. Um, but Bartholii has these, it becomes a huge bush with this sort of greyish pinkish foliage tinged on it with pink um, leaf stalks. Huge fat buds and these pink, bright pink, almost shrieking chaparelli pink um, flowers come out and they leave a calyx behind, and which, you know, is decorative in itself. But I mean, I suppose it's, it's been fully hardy here for over 20 odd years. Uh, it grows to a height of about five or six feet. So it's a big, big plant. Um, but, you know, this time of the year when everything around it's perhaps losing its, its luster, hmm. this there's suddenly erupts in the middle and after you going, my gosh, look at the freshness of that. Hmm. Absolutely fantastic. Well, uh, yeah, the, the plants that are having their moment now when so much is sort of turning to mush. Um, I've got, you mentioned roses. 
uh, there's a Jubilee celebration I have in my garden, which I bought because my mother has the most beautiful one. And hers just seems to be extra specially nice. It's a lovely rose, but hers just has slightly different antique tones about it than mine. So obviously I need a cutting from hers instead. But it's in flower, as is the Lady of Shalott that you got me. Um, but this one is combining with um, a, a clematis, which is in full flower now. And I don't know the name because it was mislabeled. It was supposed to be Jingle Bells or something because I bought it for Christmas. But it's one of the nice speckledy ones. And it's absolutely just a wash with these beautiful sepia-toned, speckle-throated clematis bells. And then there are these pink Jubilee celebration roses peeping out as well. And it it's it looks so kind of alive, I suppose, at a time yeah, of year yeah. when there's a lot of decay. And, and mm. that's such a surprise in, in you know, mine's a tiny little garden and it's not all that impressive, but it's it's a lovely surprise nonetheless. I think it's wonderful. I mean, you know, there's there are certain plants that you have and you, I mean, I bought a clematis seedling and it just, the label said seedling from Rajasthan. Now, I don't that's... know who had been to Rajasthan. Um, and who Rather a good these. label though, isn't it? I'd buy that. Yeah. <laughs> Seedling from Rajasthan. Well, seedling from Rajasthan got planted and it's on a south-facing wall and it made this vast expanse of foliage and all the rest of it. And then it flowered. And I can't really, I find it very difficult to put into words how the flowers look, what colour they are, or even, I would say they're a sort of um, dirty lemon almost. But there's something about the, the way that this plant holds its flowers that makes you look at it. It just takes your attention. Mm. I walked past it and I said to Ian, following the next two or three days, I said, what's that? He said, well, you bought that as a seedling. It came from Rajasthan. And I <laughs> said, oh, did I? And I, I don't know where I bought it or where it came from. You see, this is silly because you ought to put this information on the label. But I didn't think it was going to be of anything of anything of any importance. But at the moment, it's covered with these huge, great, fluffy, silvery seed heads. Oh, beautiful. So, I suppose I would liken it most to a tangutica, and it could be a tangutica form. Um, the foliage is very much like a clematis tangutica. And um, I just think that, well, we'll see if we can have more of this. And so I put, took some seed yesterday um, of it, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll put that somewhere to dry and get ready for the spring. Then in passing conversation yesterday with Richard, who is a great friend from um, Spalding in Lincolnshire, I told him about it, and he said, well, you know it's best sown fresh, don't you? And I said, no, I didn't know that. So he said, get out there and sow it tomorrow. So that's one of my jobs today. Oh. Um, and so, it's, you know, it's, I think that's – my knowledge is all self-taught. Mine, that, that is how my gardening knowledge was obtained from people like Richard, my grandmother, and or various other people throughout my life. There's been no, no other way. I mean, so it's lovely if you if you can – I mean, reading, of course, helps. But if you can talk to various people, that's why that, we, we've done a little thing about Hortus mag magazine, haven't we? The quarterly journal. Well, Going just, up next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just going to sort of say to, to everybody that, you know, the journal Hortus is well worth a read. It's out, it comes out four times a year. It makes a wonderful Christmas present. In fact, Thordis has got it on her Christmas list for me to give her. <laughs> so I'm... So I'm told. <laughs> we're like, we're like uh, when you get to be married and you uh, you just say, oh, this is what I want. Can I have this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a great sense of, uh, a, a great amount uh, of knowledge and learning and telling you things. And, you know, purely and simply by having a conversation from, uh, with Richard, I realised that I learnt 
that clematis seed germinates best fresh. And there are some plants that do and some plants that don't mind being kept over until the following year. If you buy a catalogue from Derry Watkins, for instance, special plants, mm. um, nursery down near Bath, I mean, she has a certain section that she will send out to seeds as soon as, the flower, as, soon as they're ripe, because mm. they're best sown straight away, because otherwise the germination falls off and, and you know, you, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. So it's worth knowing. Always pay attention to that. I mean, we don't need to tell listeners and viewers of this podcast, but people like Chilton give you brilliant germination notes. Yeah, I have is. been I have been guilty of of bulk ordering, you know, ordering a load of things and forgetting in between the the putting the order in and them arriving and being busy that one or two of those plants were things that I meant to sow immediately. Things like pleurum, I think, want to be sown. Yeah. As yeah. soon as and you get them. Really yeah. And, and then you come back to your seeds, you know, a month later and look through them and be like, ah, oh, damn it, I was supposed to sow that a month ago. <laughs> well, that's I'll tell you a little, a little tip for that is if you can have if you have two containers, one to be sown immediately and one, you know, yes. for later on. That's really the ideal thing. I mean, it can be an old biscuit tin or something, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, but no, that's actually and actually I was just thinking about the um the information that's given out by seed catalogues and seed merchants today about germination. And I felt immediately, I wanted to say, well, thank goodness they do, because the seed is expensive enough. Yeah. Because, you know, you know, it's no longer is it sixpence a packet. Um, and, you know, you don't get that many seeds. Um, and the one thing is, I think, that you have to realise is that it's a long-term thing, perhaps, but if you buy a packet of seed and you've got 25 seeds in it, if you're lucky... <laughs> Um, and you grow those, you may want to sort of grow those somewhere where you, where you can keep your eye on them so that you can harvest your own seed. And then you can have as much or as little as you want, which reminds me, I've got to go and see if I can get up onto the compost heap to, to, heap to harvest some seed of a, a cuvea. Oh. A lovely little cuvea that came from Chilton Seeds, purple. Looks like a little, almost like a, a trumpet being blown. Lovely. Like a toot from a horn to the big kind of thing. Um, and had massive seed on it because I, I went out the other day. It's all been cleared away. Um, so I was, see if I can rescue that. Because <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love saving seed. I, I, I um, in fact, I think they might still be in the bottom of the buggy. I <laughs> collected some. <laughs> when I was up the uh, allotment, I collected some uh, Tithonia seed heads, which were almost dry. It was between you know, a dry couple of days between massive rain showers. Yeah. So I thought I'll seize my moment to take them home to dry. But then obviously on the way home, I forgot. And I think they're still there <laughs> waiting well, for me you, to remember them. Sometimes we, I mean, we always have to uh, tell people to harvest your seeds on a dry day, which I mean, is, is absolutely right. And if you can do that, but you know, when you get to, uh, days like we've had recently, where we've hardly, hardly, hardly had a dry day, um, it's difficult, <clears throat> and I think well, this is what I do. I, I put my seeds into a room that's not necessarily heated. Uh, they go on the dining room windowsill, really, so they get a little bit of heat from the sun during the day, if there is any, um, and they dry out m much slower, more sort of naturally, if yeah. you like. Um, and I try and get the seeds out of the seed pods so that in case it, it starts to rot um, as well. So uh, yeah. it's just, you know, it's just me being silly, Pat, really. But, I mean, I do think it's worth doing. I love it. I, I love not only growing from seed, but saving seed. It's very exciting. All that promise for, for when you sow them. Uh, we should squeeze uh, Flomo in before we finish up the podcast. Before we do that, though, I um, I just want to mention while the allotment's in my head that of all of my dahlias, 
Um, Sam Hopkins, I've mentioned him multiple times this year because it's the first time I've grown him and he has absolutely wowed me. Still so cuttable. I mean, it's got into November, mid-November, and I've still been able to bring a few lovely long-stemmed beautiful blooms admittedly probably shaking a little bit of moisture out of them um uh, and a few bugs the old caterpillar that's sort of tried to hide in the petals but the um a lot of the others they change color they their stem length might not be quite up to what you want for your vase but he just seems to be so regular you know the flowers are the same the stems are still strong He's been robust in the face of the weather, despite the blooms being quite sizable and obviously this gorgeous chocolatey colour. So I just want to give a shout out to Sam Hopkins. I have loved growing him one season only. So who knows, maybe other people might disagree, but so far, so good for Sam Hopkins. Well, Sam Hopkins sounds like an ideal candidate for taking a seed pod off. Yeah, Just seeing what, what happens. I mean, you, they'll probably be single. Um, the progeny probably be single, but you do get sometimes you get plants with a few more um, a few more rows of petals to there. I mean, they're 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 gone now, but I mean, I've been trialing dailies all the summer from seed that I've grown from self saved seed from the garden plants that are in the garden here, um, and well, you get some crackers. You really do. I mean, and I, I remember somebody coming. They looked at the, there's uh, if you know the Honker series of dahlias, you'll know that. They have very, very narrow star-shaped petals, almost have been squeezed in the middle and stretched. And um, there's a, one of my seedlings is quite loud, actually. It's it's yellow, and then it gets orange, and then it goes to red tips, and these Ooh. pointy petals. Um, and I, two or three times during the season this year, I found people rummaging underneath it. And said, well, there's no label there. And I said, <laughs> no, it hasn't been named yet. What do you mean it hasn't been named? So, well, it's a seedling that I grew, and it's you know it, it it's it's unique to me here. There aren't any others like it, so it's going to have to be named. So we'll we'll have to think of naming these dahlias. Actually, yeah. I have to think of some sort of prefix that I can put in front of them, which says like rust and something or other, so that it, people will know where it's come from. Um, I look forward to. There'll be a lot of things. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we go, I do have to put in another little plug, of course, and that is the amount of snowdrops that we have out. Yes. <laughs> it's not until you realise. I mean, we, Graham and I went for a big walk around the garden on Sunday, as I told you, and we, and I said, look, more snowdrops, more snowdrops. And, you know, people who work in the garden here, not least Ian Roof, of course, they do dig them up, split them and spread them around. Um, and it is lovely to walk around and find these great surprises where you sort of suddenly think, to yourself, well, I didn't realise I had as many as that. Um, <laughs> and that's what happens when you just dig up and increase. And it happens really relatively quickly, I think. Yeah. Um, so snowdrops it is yeah. from now on until probably next end of March, I suppose. Yeah, if you want to get into galanthophilia, you could be enjoying them right now. Uh, mm. I don't have any autumn flowering snowdrops yet. <laughs> <laughs> well that will change with time um when well, it comes my, my first one came from actually um Susie and nico at, at ravningham hall um i mean that, that name dropper yes, i was just gonna say it sounds like name dropping but it was in actual fact that i mean they came here for lunch one day and, and i'd mentioned autumn snowdrops and and Susie obviously tuned into this and she brought me two or three bulbs of autumn flowering snowdrops from ravningham and they were the first autumn flowering snowdrops that i've ever had and they have now produced substantial clumps. As I say clumps now because, you know, from three or four bulbs, we, we've gone up to probably 30 or 40. 
um, <laughs> and they make a, a sizable patch, which is, and somebody came past me at the towards the end of the season, and this lady, she looked at me and she said, snowdrops in October. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, there will always be people who want to see snowdrops. When they think snowdrops should be, they want a nice February carpet of snowdrops and nothing else. Well, so do we all in a way. I mean, I do think there is something to be said for these. When You know, when all those gardens open for their very snowdrop days and there's carpets of snowdrops, probably thanks to their Victorian forebears who planted them in the, in the, in the very beginning. But they've been allowed to spread and to seed around and <clears throat> all the rest of it underneath a, um, a canopy of deciduous woodland, which is where they're happiest. I mean, you go to Walsingham Abbey in Norfolk or you go to Lexham Hall in Norfolk. Um, and they they both have well, there are others as well. Um, you know they have these wonderful wonderful carpets of snowdrops. So um, yes, it is lovely to see them grown like that. But if you haven't got carpets of snowdrops, or you haven't got room for carpets of snowdrops, then I do think it's nice that you have snowdrops. If you don't want them in the autumn, that's fine. But you know from Christmas onwards, three ships is a beautiful Christmas flowering snowdrop, and it flowers at, on Christmas Day when everything in the garden is, is most probably most dismal. And there's several others that open throughout January into February, into March. Um, and you get various slight oddities, some with kicked out petals, some with dogs of green on the outside of the petals, double, single, some with long, long curving petals. I'm thinking of walrus, which yeah. is a difficult one, but if you can please it, it's lovely. Um, Veritopisis, uh, or the PC, I don't know how you say it, it has slight green on the outside, but it's one of the best for increasing. Um, so, you know, if you've got, you've got it growing in the gardens, when it's finished flowering, as it dies down, dig it up and spread it around. It's absolutely fabulous. It's a bit like spreading love around, isn't it, really? <laughs> you know? Well, I suppose we're trying to spread our love gardening around. I think, I think that's um, the one thing that uh, I, I, I always do. And that, um, another little plant, I just made a list here. Another little plant on my list, I have to mention, is nerines. Ah. Because over the years, over the years, I've been collecting nerines, tender and and hardy varieties, and it's very interesting because um, Ed Brown from Cotswold Garden Flowers sent me a plant. He came up to do a talk in Norfolk, which unfortunately I couldn't go to, um, and he sent me a plant of a, of a nerine, a bright pink nerine. Um, I can't remember the name of it offhand, but it's not it's lovely lady, is it? Yes, it is lovely lady. How do you know that? Because it's my flomo. <laughs> 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 well, he sent me a, a, a plant of this, and it was outside in lots of garden flowers, which had minus fourteen last winter. It was outside all year. What's it? So that one is can go down as a, as a hardy variety, I think. Uh, and one of the things, I, one of the things I, I like to do is as as we're. You know, you buy these nerines, you probably, and they, they're not cheap, they're fairly expensive, but one bulb in a pot. But, you know, three or four years later, you've got cups around the edge and you can divide them. And then you've got three, four, five, seven, ten pots. Um, what do you do with them all? Where do you keep them all? You can't keep them all under glass. You run out of space. So it's time to start trying them in the garden. And we've got a new area of garden that we're, it's, it's not a big area, but it's a small area. Um, and it's a new wall that's going up and then there'll be double doors through into the desert. On the other side of that is a south-facing piece of garden there, which has got very dry. It's fairly raised. The, the soil is fairly raised. So it's free draining and very dry. And I'm going to try growing some of the less hardy nerines there and a few other um, bulbs as well. I mean, amaryllis, there are certain varieties of amaryllis that you, or hippiastrum as it's called, 
that um, have been grown outside for, for several years in various places. But um, I think they may need, the one thing they may need is a, a cloche or a piece of glass over the top to keep them dry in the winter more than anything else. Mm. Um, but they might just be worth the effort, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And I feel like we've sort of tumbled into FLOMO, which is that floral or plant-based fear of yeah. missing out you get. Uh, clearly, you've got some Noreen and Amaryllis FLOMO for your new bit of garden. The reason I had Lovely Lady on my list is because I I quite often screenshot things I see on Instagram and Jane Ann Walton, a wonderful Norfolk gardener, always sharing, you know, growing in her own garden, amazing plants, some of them from Cottage Garden Society, seed swaps, some of them she's just bought, some she's had for 20 years or whatever, uh, wonderful plants. And new acquisition from Cotswold Garden Plants was this fabulous Noreen that almost seemed although carmine pink, to be sort of suffused with a, a lilac-y, dusky colour. So I don't know what it's like in real life, but from the photo, it gave me uh, uh, Diantha's, Diantha's Chumley Farron vibes. Chumley Farron, yeah, yeah. That kind yeah. of... That's not, that is not the one that, that he sent me. Oh, OK. <laughs> no, that's not, definitely not. I don't want people to suddenly think, oh, we'll go and get a lovely lady and plant it outside <laughs> because it might not live. I don't. That is not the one that, that Ed sent no, me. No, so. I'm... I think Lovely Lady probably isn't hardy. It doesn't look hardy anyway, but it, it isn't as, if you know Chumley Farron, and we'll put a photo on the video version, it's not as pronounced as that, but it, it had that kind of tonal quality to it, which drew me in. I don't know where I put it because I don't think Lovely Lady is hardy. Uh, maybe if you find out the name of the one that they sent you, we'll put it on the plant list. But an, another I'll, I'll do, thing... Yeah which I think probably also isn't hardy, which uh, Jane Ann shared, was a, a salvia microphylla called Delice Aquamarine. Oh, do you approve of that one, little man? Yeah, we've got a, a shout of approval from the kitchen, from the little baby. Uh, Delice Aquamarine okay. appeared to have um, pale blue flowers all summer long. I love a salvia that flowers and flowers right the way through the season. I suspect it would need some winter protection though so probably not necessarily one that's ideal for me but it was absolutely beautiful pale blue in the photo almost looked like it had a certain amount of luminosity um but i don't know if it does in real life but i i yeah i, I couldn't well, resist anyway talking about luminosity that's one of the things that you get on the petals of, of nerings is this crystalline appearance almost as if it's got a um a little coating of a, a glittery varnish on it on the petals. Hello. Lily. They're all coming. They've come Hello, back from Lily. their walk. Hello, there's Lily. Hello, Lily. <laughs> She's come for her post-walk tickles. The baby's gone upstairs yeah. to be changed out of his pram suit. It's all happening here in Cambridgeshire. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be my cue. Um, did, did you have any flomo to share, Alan, or did we cover it with Noreen's? I think we've covered it with Noreen's because, and, and tropiolums because there's, there's Noreen's and there's Tropiolums. And the one thing I really would like to find, if I possibly could, and that's a fairly tall growing pink flowered Argoranthemum, or, you know, there's marguerites that we use for summer bedding. I haven't got a tall, a tall growing pink one, and I would love to have that. I've got Jamaica Primrose, which is the tall growing lemon, and I've got the, the lovely one that originally came from Beth Chateau, which I think is, I'm, I'm not going to say what it's called because it might be wrong, but it is most wonderful um, silver filigree foliage and it makes big bushes. <clears throat> the advantage of Argoranthemus is you grow them from cuttings and if you harden them off, you can put them out fairly early, towards the end of March or beginning of April. Surprisingly, they don't get a hard frost on them because they, oh, they would tolerate low temperatures. 
bringing up your space in the greenhouse. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> what a treat. Uh, I have absolutely loved talking about all the fabulous things at East Ruston this November. We will attempt to reconvene for a December special. But in the meantime, next week, we will start a two-parter with David Wheeler, editor of Hortus magazine. And that is a fantastic episode for the leaf peepers amongst us. Uh, so until then, happy gardening, everybody. <laughs> Happy gardening. Hey, 4Ds here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. Hey.